Good evening, Hope. You ready, wives? You're going to get them in shape? I'm going to give you lots of, lots of uh, ammunition to take home tonight and get, them, uh, get these husbands in shape. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 on this sort of mini-series on the Christian home, husbands and wives, uh, uh, parents and children next week, and then, and then employers and how we should be working in that way. This is, this is all a part of, basically since chapter 4, Paul has taken the, the focus not away from Christ and his finished work, not that at all, but he is looking through Christ and his finished work now to see how should those who have been purchased by Jesus, how should those who have been forgiven by Jesus, how should those people who have been justified by Jesus' righteousness, how should the people of God, that in chapter 5 he calls children of light, people who are light in the Lord, we are, we are sources of light in the world, how should the children of light be living in the world in order to glorify Jesus, in order to, to, to make much of the gospel, in order to be obedient to our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. None of us, this is what Ephesians 1 through 3 drove home week after week so clearly, no one of us is in right relationship with God because of our own performance or religious deeds or doings. Amen? The most important part, thing about you is not, are you a good Christian, so-called? The most important thing about you is not, did you grow up in a Christian home? Are you a religious person? Are you an obedient person? What's your job? What's your income? What's your lifestyle? What's your past? None of those things. What are your dreams for the future? None of those things are the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is, are you in Christ? By faith and faith alone, are you in Christ or the only other option is to be out of Christ and in Adam heading for destruction and condemnation and punishment and penalty that sin deserves. Hallelujah. Praise God that he has given Jesus Christ to be our sacrifice, our payment for sin, our Lord, Savior, head and king so that by faith we are joined to him. We go where he goes, which is heaven. We have forgiveness and an inheritance waiting for us. That's the gospel of Ephesians. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get to Ephesians 4, and uh, Paul has been telling us, if that's you, if you're a light in the Lord, then that will affect your sexuality. That will affect your spendings and your consumerism. That will affect your work ethic. That will affect every single thing about you. One of the main things that he says in Ephesians 4 is that that will mean, that will necessitate, if you're in Christ, then you're in his body. Let's just say something very black and white. It, it should not be the fact, it must not be the fact that anybody that is in his body is outside of his body. That's, that's pretty basic. But what we mean by that is that if you're a part of his invisible body, the elect, the saved people of God, then you must be found to be in a visible body, the local church, because that, Ephesians 4 tells us, that is where we receive our nourishment from the teachers, from the community, from each other member as we grow. So you must be in a church, you must be living holy, you must be being sanctified in all these different ways. And last week he spoke to, to wives specifically, how to submit respectfully to your husband. And tonight, he gets to husbands and tells them how to love like Jesus in their leadership and authority in the home. So let's go to Ephesians 5. We're going to read from verse 25. Hear now the word of the true living God. Husbands, love your wives. Apparently, I I read that as love your husbands at the Gold Coast. I've improved. I got it right from the echo. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. 
I'll get there. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, Genesis 2 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and, shall, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless his own word in our midst this evening. Amen, Amen and thanks be to God. We have here a, a passage that speaks to the headship, the authority that husbands have, the legitimate God-given authority that husbands have in the marriage relationship, but we see it given to husbands. It's commanded to husbands to use that authority, that genuine authority from God, in a very biblical, Christ-like way. Headship, uh, for, the, for, the, for the newbies in the room or for those who are, this is pretty new language, headship is the flip side of submission. Submission means, we said last week, to fall in line. Acknowledge your, your, your role in the marriage covenant. If you're a woman, that means you're the wife and you fall in line and the obligation upon you as wife is to submit to your husband. And that is because on the flip side, he is called to be husband and that means head over the wife, just as Christ is head over the church. Nature even shows to us that it is men who are built biologically, physiologically from the DNA upwards. Men are built in such a way by God for the sake of the design of marriage. In other words, God made men in such a way that they would make good husbands, and God made wives physiologically, biolog biologically, uh, intricately, so that they would be good wives. Men don't make good wives. That'll get you cancelled today. And women do not make good husbands. Men are made to be, are made in such a way that it is appropriate that they are the head of a man-woman relationship called marriage, and women are designed in such a way that they appropriately become the submissive party or the helper companion in the marriage relationship. Nature teaches us this, it is so extremely clear, our differences in bio biology and, and physiology, uh, men are made stronger faster, more dominant, and more aggressive. This doesn't mean that you won't find any woman that is more dominant than some men. We're speaking in gen generalities, and, and at the extremes, this is definitely true, but of 90% of, of the human race, this is true. Men are made stronger, faster, more dominant, more aggressive. They are higher, they rate higher in psychological things like, like objectivity, and goal orientation, whereas women rate higher in interpersonality and people orientation. Men are geared toward achieving. Women more tend towards caring. Men are more interested in things, women and people. Men are harder. Women are more tender. Men are stronger. Females are weaker. Now, that none of that is meant... It sounds like I'm, this is just clickbait. This is trying to get cancelled. We're trying to get locked down and burn... 
burnt down by the extremists. That should not be controversial. That is just the basics of what we see in Genesis 2 when God says he made them male and female, therefore, or for the sake that they would join each other as husband and wife and become one flesh. This is very basic and we need to understand that we are not made the same and then just called to play different roles. You are husband material, if you want me to put it really simply. If you're a man, you're husband material. If you're a wife, a woman, you are wife material from the genetics up. It doesn't mean you're only a true person or you're only a true Christian if you're married. We're not saying that. You don't become the image of God upon marriage. What we are saying is that God has designed the genders intentionally for the sake of marriage and propagation, which we spoke a couple of weeks about. Now, Paul doesn't go to his culture to prove headship. Paul doesn't go to, to what he sees around him in the Roman Empire to prove headship, which he could have done wrongly, but he, he could have looked around him and seen oppressive hyper-patriarchalism in the ancient world, or he could have looked around him and seen these budding waves of feministic progressivism that was occurring in the Roman world as well. He doesn't normalize either. He goes to nature and says, this is how God made us. He goes to the word and argues from Genesis. And he goes to redemption and argues from the shape of the gospel where Jesus is head and the church, the feminine church, uh, is, the, is the body I don't mean a soft, weak feminine church. I mean the church in the feminine role submits to Jesus. It'll always be that way despite culture. And so the, 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 the marriage design of God will always be that way despite culture. He says in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. He is, just as Christ is of the church. That's not, a, that's not a democracy. We don't vote to submit to Jesus. We do or we're not the church. So also, men are the heads of their wives, or they're not married. The only way a man can say, I'm not head over her, I'm not responsible for her, I won't give account to her, She's, I'm not going give, give, give to a, give a, an accounting on the day of judgment. The only way that's true is if you're not married. It doesn't matter if you agree that she's the leader, it doesn't matter if you agree that she's more dominant, it doesn't matter. Jesus will ask, like he asked Adam, he will come into you or uh, to, to, to your presence, or you will come into his presence on judgment day, and he will ask, where were you? What did you do? The Bible everywhere shows us that the wife is the garden, the husband, the gardener. The state of the garden is largely due to the degree and amount of effort put in by the gardener. You don't like your wife? Your responsibility. Get weeding, get serving, get, get helping but you will give account on judgment day as head of the relationship and responsible party. So here's the overarching command that headship brings with it. If headship means that we are to be leading and taking responsibility for our marriage and that we will give an account for our marriage on judgment day, if we are that as the heads, here's the, the command that Paul gives in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. This becomes for us the overarching command uh, because just about any husband would hear that and say, hey, love your wives. And they go, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm doing that. I don't tell her I hate her. So that's pretty, I mean, we're still married. So I'll just go and check that box. We aren't allowed to, we're not just given this very brief and easy love your wives. He starts breaking it down. So we will get more specific. But to start out, this is the generality. This is the direction that Paul gives it. He says, love your wives. He doesn't tell husbands, make your wives submit. 
He tells wives to be voluntarily, unforced, joyfully submissive, deferring to your husband under his leadership. He nowhere tells husbands to enforce submission on their wives. Not our job. Our job is to love. Our job is to lead. Her job before Jesus is to submit. So it is not our job to submit our wives. It's their job to submit to us. It is our job to uh, uh, perfect our weakness. It's the case that when Paul is commanding, hey, wives submit and husbands love, he's commanding at our weak points. In other words, if he had said, hey, wives, love your husbands, probably most wives would go, easy, I know how to love. That's very natural. I'm a personal-oriented sort of gender. I can love, I can dote, I can, I can do those things. But when he says respect, we say, oh, you know what? Um, what's that say in the Greek? Because I don't really agree with that. Because Genesis 3 onwards told us that as God cursed the woman, he, he said, you're going to find submission difficult and it's going to grind on you. But you have to do it. And in the same way, God looks at husbands, and if he had said, show respect to your wives, probably we can go, yeah, yes, sir, I can do that. She's an equal, she's a pal, she's a housemate, she's a helpmate. We can do these things. She's a good helper. She keeps the bottom line from going red. She's handy. And Paul says, that's just not all that affectionate and romantic and loving. Men are geared to naturally forget love, and so he commands us to do that which we are naturally weak at. Love. Love your wife. And he says here, first of all, this love needs to be sacrificial. We're going to look at a couple of uh, three main elements of what this love needs to look like, how it's meant to be shaped. Well, this love needs to be given sacrificially. It needs to be a sacrificing love, and we see this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If last week we understood submission is countercultural these days, so also tonight we need to acknowledge that men dutifully taking on responsibility for the sake of others is very countercultural. We're big on autonomy, and you, you, you uh, uh, toxic masculinity ramp, you know, runs rampant, and so, so don't see yourself as the hero that needs to step up. No, no, you need to sit down. The future is female. The Bible says, stuff that. The, the future is male and female. That's the future, because the future is the image of God being glorified under God's sovereign plan. The Bible tells us that men need to love, need to love sacrificially, but they need to sacrifice in a leading way. So, so, if, so if it is uncommon that men would be dutiful and responsible, it is even less common that there would be strong, firm leaders who are also affectionate. That's even more rare. I think we can go wrong, as Paul tells us to love as husbands, love our wives, sacrificingly like Jesus did, we can go wrong in two ways. We can misconstrue what sacrifice means and be beta passive men, or we can uh, uh, ignore what sacrifice means and become brutish aggressive men. That is that we can sin in two ways. We can either become the passive beta or we can become the aggressive brute. The aggressive brute forgets the fact that God commands you through Paul with these kinds of words. He says, love your wife. He uses language like nourish and cherish. He uses language of being one flesh, just as Christ is one flesh with his believers. So the brute forgets that. 
and therefore does not have this all-important element that I want to bring to our minds, this idea of benevolence. A husband needs to be the kind of ruler and, 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 and leader in a marriage such that he has an overflowing benevolence. This is one of the attributes of God. That even to his enemies, but through all of his providence, ordinary in the world, he has a benevolence towards his creatures. A love and a good giving graciousness towards all beings, especially to his elect, to his saved ones, to his church. And so it is that the, the rule or the authority of a husband as head needs to be marked by a constant overflowing benevolence. In other words, his authority is for the sake of benefiting those underneath him. The aggressive brute thinks of authority entirely meaning entitlement and being served by other people. It forgets that in all of Christ's authority, in all of his ministry, in all of his works, he did it for his bride. His becoming human was so that he might redeem our flesh. His living a perfect life was so that we would have a righteous account. His teaching day by day was for our instruction. His death on the cross was for our sin in our place. His resurrection was for our justification to eternal life. His ascension to the throne was not merely for his own selfish glory, but so that we would have a representative in the throne, throne room of God, and so that he could rule and reign over us in order to protect us and save us. And his future return is so that we can be made with him forever. Everything Jesus done, does is in his authority is for the sake of his people. Let it also be true of men. If not, we are aggressive brutes. Authority means entitlement. There is, a, there is such a way of, of a head a a, a claiming for itself so much gold into its crown that it breaks the neck and, and, and smushes the body. And that's what it's like when husbands want to amass all of the authority and take all of the entitlement. They're, they're building for themselves this glorious crown that crushes their wife, their body. That, that, that leaves them as a, as, as a mangled marriage because he desires more than he was meant to carry. Or secondly, if it's not the aggressive brute, we mentioned the passive beta. And the passive beta male uh, 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 forgets that Paul commands men and husbands, he commands husbands to lead, to be the head of the wife, to be active in sanctifying her, in teaching her, which which includes rebuke and exhortation. It is his job to protect her, and she is commanded to submit to him. None of these things are remembered by a passive beta. We will naturally, we will very naturally in our day and age, we will cry foul if a husband is being an aggressive brute. Very good, very biblical, very sound. If there's an aggressive sort of brutish guy in the workforce, he'll quickly be called to HR, he'll quickly be reprimanded, he'll quickly be fired and replaced with, with a soft dude who's uh, inclusive and wears the rainbow lanyard. Men who are sinning by way of passivity, in softness, in effeteness, in, in being all entirely neutered and institutionalized and being pushovers, those kinds of men still get plenty of jobs in all kinds of arenas. They are promoted uh, uh, characteristic traits in, in teaching and nursing and management and in HR and in the pastoral office. Pastor search committees looking for a pastor will look for a nice, well-dressed, 
pushover that will do precisely and exactly what the female deacons and the committee members want him to do. That's his job. Be pushed over. Lead us when we want to be led. So aggressive, goal-oriented, firm, strong, rightly aggressive kind of men who are hard, tough, tender when necessary, but stable and vision-casting, leading firm men whose character shows Jesus Christ. These guys aren't institutionally friendly. They don't get the job right out of Bible college. They might not even get into Bible college. They don't get uh, uh, chased after by the family-friendly churches and the culturally engaging, softer church. They don't get uh, called into HR. As Have you ever heard the, you ever told a joke so good? I have. You ever told a joke so good in the office that the HR department wants to hear it? You've had that? I've had that, yeah. Oh, my boss wants to hear it. I'll tell them all. Yeah, it was a great joke. Some men, those men, strong men, non-pushover men, aggressive and, and appropriately firm masculine men, as the Bible calls them to be, are not institutionally friendly. So, so this softness, this is, a, this is a promoted, profitable, socially acceptable sin. But it is a sin that God hates and says in 1 Corinthians 6, disqualifies you from being marked out as entering the kingdom. If you're a soft man, 1 Corinthians 6 says, you're not a kingdom man. You're a worldly man. So repent and act according to your calling. Be masculine. In other words, if I could just boil it down to this very easy term, be a threat. Be a threat. How many women are, are pulverized and, and bullied and walked over and mistreated and spoken poorly of because their husbands are pushovers? They're not a threat to the bully, to the, to the abuser, to the sexual assaulter, to the, to, the, to the bad influences, to the strong flirtatious men around them. Whatever it may be, if you are a pushover, your wife will be the one trampled. She's the one you're meant to defend. So be a threat to your own sin, first of all, to the, to the wiles of the devil and his army, yes, but be a threat to dangerous people. Learn how to punch. Don't be a threat to your wife. Never ever be a threat to your wife. You're the tender gardener who loves and shepherds your wife's soul, but to aggressors and bullies and rude upper management and false teachers and poisonous women and bad influences, you are a threat to be reckoned with. That's what being a husband means. Headship demands, go to Proverbs 31. I think we naturally think, Proverbs 31, the praiseworthy wife, the thing young gals should aim for and that wives should look at every now and then, Proverbs 31, to be reminded of wife goals, right? But that's the second half of Proverbs 31. The first half of Proverbs 31 is in fact a mother's advice to her son about what kind of man he ought to be. And while she is talking to him in terms of his kingship, because he's a, he's a king, it can also be applied to husbands in general, who we can say in a very limited sense are little kings over little kingdoms called families. And so Proverbs 31 starts out with this. The, the, queen, the, the, the king mother is speaking to her son, and he's, she says in verse 2, What are you doing, son of my vows? I think every mother of a teenage or older boy has at some point experienced this. You look at them. Maybe the friends they're hanging out, maybe the girl they got hanging off their arm, maybe what they're looking at on the internet, maybe something they're saying, maybe the way they're dressing, maybe the car they're trying to buy or who they're trying to impress, whoever it may be, you look at your son and go, what in the world are you doing? 
That is idiotic. What are you doing? You're, you're trying to do that. You're trying to impress her. You're trying to bring her home to your father. No, thank you. She's looking at her son who's wasting his time and wasting his manhood on women of the night, on adulterous women, sinning sexually with them. She says, what are you doing, son of my vows, son whom I made vows over to teach and discipline? Verse 3. Do not give your strength to women your ways to those who destroy kings. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine and rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to those who are perishing, to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty. Remember their misery no more, but you open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Do you see what his mother's saying to him? If you have been given authority, it is not so that you have all the money to spend on hookers and have all the opportunities to go to parties. It is so that you might muster your masculine strength, not to be given away in a fling, but to be ruling over your people who need you. The poor, the destitute, the mute, the afflicted, they need their king to be sober, on time for work, awake and alert, not at the parties, but engaged in their defense. It's the same with husbands. The headship of husbands, the authority given to them, is not so that they can be served, is not so that they can amass for themselves little glory clouds. It is that they might sacrifice their own pleasures and preferences and hobbies, and they might focus their masculine energy on protecting, promoting, providing for, and leading their wife. That's what Jesus did. He did not come down and utilize his authority simply for pleasure, he utilized his authority to give himself up as a sacrifice willing and perfect to God to absorb his wrath for the sins of his bride. He took ultimate responsibility for us to the point of death. That's the example for husbands. Love your wives affectionately, masculinely, in sacrifice of yourself for her good. And the example and extent is there for us. We've never done it enough until we're, we're dead. <laughs> and unless you are dying literally for your bride, you can never say, I've done enough. I've, I've done as much as Jesus. We keep on pushing, keep on sacrificing for the good of our wives. But secondly, if a, if a husband's leadership and authority is supposed to be sacrificingly done, it is also meant to be sanctifying. That is that his leadership is given a direction by Jesus. He's not allowed to choose which way he takes his marriage, nor is the wife. Look at verse 26 and 7. We're told the reason or the direction that Jesus sacrificed in. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is to say, women, your husbands are not told, sacrifice for your wife, do what she likes, she's the boss, lead her the way she wants to be led. It's not that you get a blank check to say, what does love look like for you and I'll do it. Rather, your husbands are commanded to lead you towards sanctification, towards godliness, 
the, 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 the compass for the husband is already set when you come into marriage. You are meant to lead sacrificingly in as much as you can lead her in the direction of sanctification. Now you get to choose whether you're a flowers gal or whether you're a poem gal or whether you're a dress gal or a necklace gal. That's totally up to you and he has to become the kind of husband that gives those, right? If you love buying flowers because they're easy but she likes poems, get writing, okay? We love them in those ways but how we lead, what direction we lead the family, no, that, that is set by Jesus, the Lord of the family. These are the greatest themes of Scripture. Look, look again at the, at the passage. He says from verse 25 through 27, he basically encapsulates the whole of redemptive history from eternity past to eternity future. He says he loved her, he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her and make her without blemish, blemish or spot and then present herself to him on the last day in the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's the entirety of redemptive history, eternity past to eternity future, the entire spectrum of time and beyond given to us in the husbandly duties of Christ to his church. In other words, you cannot have a more significant duty to undertake than that which is in sync with the eternal purposes of the triune Godhead. And that is what husbands are called to do. Get on the train, in other words. Jesus is driving this train from eternity past, right through history, to die for his people, to save his people, to sanctify his people, and then present them to himself on the last day. And husbands are told, get on with that purpose. Join in with what Jesus is doing. He does it to his bride. You just have to do it with one bride. Thank the Lord. I remember as a child, he used to read the polygamy in the Old Testament and go, that would be cool. It wouldn't be. No, it would not be. One. One wife is enough and a pleasure. And my wife says, I know why there was never women with two husbands in the Bible. Women mature faster. They knew. She says, I would not want two Toms. Neither would I, neither would anybody else. Jesus is sanctifying a whole lot of us. We just have to take responsibility for our own wives, gentlemen. And so we must. It must be a sanctifying relationship. Doug Wilson says, these are the themes, this is the theme of the whole of Scripture. You could, you, could, you could summarize the whole Bible in a few phrases. That the father says to the son, kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, that great enemy of God's people, Satan, who, who tempted them into a downfall, and then get the girl. Win for yourself a bride, win for yourself the church, and she'll be presented to you. This is the, the storyline of Scripture that Jesus enters in, dies for her, wins her, and then receives a kingdom from the Father that will have no end, and he gets to rule and reign over this perfected world with his queen by his side. That is what Jesus is passionate about, doing right now, focused on, and so husbands are called to do the same. Now, husbands, doesn't matter what your wife says, love does not mean ignoring her sins when they need addressing. Love will mean covering over a multitude of sins. That's not what I'm talking about. Love does not mean that you never mention, never point out, never teach over your wife's sins. If she likes her sins being left alone, because that's just how she is, you don't get to bow to her. You don't let to get to sin by letting her wear those pants and ignoring sinful habits in the marriage. Love does not mean that you don't ask her to do much. 
That's not how Christ speaks to his bride. He expects much of us, commands much of us, knowing that by the Spirit we can do much. So can wives. We know that love does not mean that you give to her the squishy gift of a soft husband. And you do whatever she likes. And you do whatever she says. And she's the queen. Not at all love. Love sacrifices by leading strongly, come what may. And every husband knows that comes with a couple of storms here and there. No amens? Wise men. Wise men. Don't amen it. No, don't amen it. My wife's a storm. No, hands down. Don't, don't do that. Love means that we lead the way that Jesus' love leads, and that is towards sanctification. Of course, you, here are three things you need if you're leading your wife towards sanctification. First of all is your own holiness, your own, hol- your own spiritual disciplines. How's your prayer life? Are you praying? Are you praying more than you were last year? Are you reading the Bible? Are you, are you devouring the Word so that you can be washed by your uh, uh, husband Jesus, the Bible would say? He washes us that way so you can wash you up. But are you first being washed? Or are you dirty trying to wash your wife with dirty hands? Your holiness matters. Your, 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 your fidelity of mind and soul matters. And this is one of the biggest areas that men struggle. If you are entertaining lustful thoughts, adulterous imaginations, pornography, or sexual immorality in some other way, you are disqualified from being able to sanctify your wife. You need to repent swiftly. You need to repent openly. You need to confess it to her. You need to confess it to the Lord. Depending on the gradation of this sin and the depth of which you've been sinning, you need to confess it to pastoral elders. You need to do all that you can to uproot and weed out lustful sexual sins in your marriage or you fail and will fail at ever being able to sanctify your wife. Everything will be a show. It will be fake. So you need to repent and be holy yourselves or you cannot lead her in holiness. Secondly, you need to then do spiritual disciplines together. Pray together, read the Bible together, read good books together, uh, read biographies together, whatever it may be, especially go to church together, sing together, serve in ministry together, be hospitable together, go to a fellowship group together. Hand in hand before the Lord is how you should lead your wife. And then more specifically, so you're being holy, you're doing spiritual disciplines together, but then you also need to be teaching your bride teaching theology, explaining the word, reading the Bible together, since this is how Ephesians 5, here in in verse uh, 26, it says that this is how God cleans his bride, by the water of the word. They're not two separate things. The the ancient uh, bridal uh, uh, process used to include a wedding morning bridal bath. Um, that, we just call that a shower. That's pretty common practice. It's not like a, she's showered. She must be getting married. It's, it's to that, to, for us, we're in the, we're in the pleasures of, of those privileges. But, but in the old world, if you, you had a bath, this whole, the bridesmaids would bath you and, and pour buckets on you and whatnot. That's the, that's the cleansing of the bride with the water. And Jesus says the way that he gets his bride, the church, ready for the bridal wedding day of the last day of judgment, he says he gets her ready by washing her with the word, by the reading of the word, the application of the word, the understanding of the gospel and all God's commands. So husbands, you are God's chief tool to sanctify your wife. Are you teaching her? Are you praying over her? Are you doing those things Yourself. Love, 
Husband's love needs to be sacrificially benevolent. It needs to be sanctifying in its direction. And thirdly, our love needs to be supplying. That is that it needs to know the needs and fill the needs of everything our wife needs to have. Needs to have. Not wants. That's an unending list. But needs to have. Ephesians 5 says it this way in verse 28. That husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. So, so, so it may sound like he's, he's taken a swift right turn and gone from this lofty example of love your wife like Jesus loves your wife, and then he goes, he concludes it with love your wife like you love yourself. And it sounds like we've just dropped into the ditch off the mountaintop. Like that's not as lofty and, and glorious. But, but he's simply saying, this is how Jesus loves us. He loves us as he loves himself. He loves us as he loves his body because we are his body. And so he's simply saying to husbands, inasmuch as any logical right-minded man knows and supplies the needs for his body, so also you do that for your bride because you're the head and she's the body. This is how it's meant to work. So, so husbands know their own lives, know their own bodies, don't they? You may you know, come home from work and have unexplained scratches and bruises, and that's most guys. But, but what we mean is that if you've got a stone in your shoe, if you've got a, a gash on the back of the leg, you've got a weird rash across your back, you've got a, a sore ear or a headache or something wrong with your vision or a bad, every dad has a bad knee, uh, if you're gaining weight or if you're losing uh, 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 stats in the gym, you know it more than anybody else knows it. That's what it means for it to be your body. You, un, you, you know it hurts when nobody else can see it. You know it's needs when nobody else can see it. You know your own body. You are sensitive to your own body. And Paul is saying, do that to your wife. You know what, pain, what, what hurts you. You know what feelings you have. You know what desires your body has when it's grumbling for hunger. You know it. And so also you need to be sensitive to and know your wife. Some wives, phone buzzes, it's that certain family member or that certain friend or friend and husband knows this is going to take an afternoon of calming down and chilling out and watching Gilmore Girls and a flat, maybe a chai tea, okay, this is going to, he knows her. He knows her well. He knows what ticks her. He knows what, what triggers her and so he's a pastor that, that, that knows to step in. He knows that, that maybe a hymn is sung that reminds us of, of maybe her father's funeral or, or a miscarriage and that hymn was close to us at that time or whatever it may be. A husband knows those intricacies that only the wife would know about themselves except for the fact that they have such a loving husband. He knows her. He knows what she needs, what she will feel at different times and occasions, right? Gals might have, have emotional spikes at weddings. The weddings make them either regretful or, or, or extremely happy or, or confused about their feelings or they come from a broken home and so they struggle with weddings and birthdays and Christmases and funerals. Who knows? You should know. You're the husband. And, and instead of saying, what a ridiculous book this is to read, who could get used to it? You start reading. You learn the language. You learn your wife. You be sensitive to her so that you know what she needs, how she feels, what she desires and how to be a good husband just as much as you know your own body. And then, 
fulfill those needs. So not only do you know her, but you also supply and provide what she needs for those needs. When your body hungers, you chuck a burger into it. When your body thirsts, you crack a cold one. You know, you know exactly how this works. So no husband is allowed to say to Paul here, just don't know this whole meeting needs thing. Very, you know, It's above me. Paul goes, if you know how to feed, wash, clothe your own body, then you know how to provide for your wife. You know how to see a need and just fill it. What he's saying by, by implication is that any husband who, who looks at his wife and knows she has a, a hunger and feeds her dirt, proverbially, or any, any husband who, who sees that she is struggling and adds to her burden, any husband who sees a weakness and attacks it further, is like the man who is pathologically insane or mentally ill who feels hunger and eats dirt, or feels thirst and drinks salt water or mercury, who has a wound and puts salt and, and lemon into it to increase the pain. We would look at that man and say, he needs admittance to an institution. He's mentally insane. The old English word, he's an idiot. A guy who simply looks at it, and he says, right, he says, no one has ever hated his own body. And we go, of course people do. They, they, they punish themselves, they attack themselves, they, they brutalize their own body. And Paul's like, yeah, but they're not in their right mind. They're, they're idiotic. And so the, the implication is that any husband who looks at his wife and brutalizes, abuses, insults, screams at, mistreats, uh, uses her as the emotional, verbal, or physical punching bag, you're an idiot. You're the guy sitting in the, in, in, the, in, 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 the, in the gutter, in a garbage bag, eating whatever you find in that gutter. That's you. You have no clue how to look after your own body, and you get very upset when a pastor says you're an idiot, but you are, and you like to intimidate women so that no one calls you that, but you are. And Paul's immediate rebuke and exhortation to you is repent, be like Jesus, or stop pretending that you follow him. There is no Christian husband. Or let me speak to the wives. There is no excuse for a husband. I don't care if it's cultural. He's come from a line of this. This is his family's way of dealing with it. I did speak back a lot. I'm not very submissive. I don't give him as much sex as he wants. Zero excuses for any husband to ever be anything like abusive, brutalizing, punishing, intimidating, and bullying to a wife. Paul says if he knows how to keep himself alive and doesn't go and brutalize his own body, then he has the nerve endings in his brain to be able to look after you better than he is. His conscience is guilty. He knows he's sinning. He's lying to you. He needs to, you owe it to him and to yourself and to God to report his behavior to the elders, maybe the police. When she has weaknesses, when she has hungers, when she has hurts, the husband, who knows how to do this with his own body, seeks to fill them. And additionally, he seeks to protect her. The husband, in his supplying love, giving her everything she needs, acknowledges Exactly what Paul said in, uh, Peter said in 1 Peter 3 when he said, live with your wives in such a way that shows that you understand she's the weaker vessel. You're built to take the punches. You're built to stand in the way of her and harm. You're built to be the wall around the marriage. You're built to protect and love, not tear down, but to face front ways when, when, when harm or danger is coming. You take it on the chin. You take it head on. The man who proactively protects his wife is being very, very Christ-like. 
Christ proactively goes out of his way to protect his wife from that which would steal us from him. Bullies, sexual advances of other men, immoral entertainment, false teachers, bad influences, physical dangers, or scandalizing situations. As much as you naturally react away from heat, as much as you naturally jump out of the way of a speeding car, so also men must jump into harm's way to protect their wives. This is what it means, as Paul says in verse uh, 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 28, that we must nourish and cherish. Uh, Sorry, verse 29. Nourish and cherish means protect and provide in every way needed. Now, we've got 10 very practical steps before we close out. 10, easy, because guys have maybe tuned out, or guys need the, you just need the dot points. I even put it in order. It's 1 to 10. It's all in English. It's right here for us. 10 practical ways. Some of this is summary. We've said it already, but you were thinking about the footy. So tune in. Pray for your wife, number one. Pray for, you may have nothing to teach. You may have nothing to give. You may, have, have, you may be, be broke, useless, idiotic, and have nothing to offer, but you can pray. You can go to the Lord. You can go and beseech the King of Kings to help, protect, provide for, supply your wife with all she needs, especially to improve you. you can, Kent Hughes says, Husbands, if we are not praying in detail for our wife, We are in active sin. It is a positive command for husbands to be praying for their wives because that is exactly what Jesus is doing right now. Interceding, praying for his bride here on earth. Secondly, pray with your wife. Pray for your wife. And also pray with your wife. Those should be two separate things. You should be frequently praying for, often praying for in private, but also praying with, hand in hand, on your knees, on your bedside at night, or or over the dinner table, or with the children, and in private, praying with your wife. She needs to be taught by your soul, her husband, how to approach Jesus Christ. She may be a tremendous prayer, but there is nothing she can't be added to, benefited by, or, or gain from your leading her in prayer towards Jesus Christ. She needs that. Give it to her. Number three, teach and read the Bible with your wife. We've said this already. It's a summary. Teach her. If you don't know anything, learn so you can teach her. You only ever need to be one day ahead, you know? Read, a, read the Bible and the commentary for tomorrow's passage and you'll always be a day ahead of your wife's question. If she's way smarter than you, ask her to teach you and then you can teach her. That'll be difficult, but you'll make it work. Teach and read the Bible with your wife. Listen to all you can. Sit down with men who pull you up, not who make you act more of a teenager. Be around men who are a few seasons ahead in life who are calling you up to a higher godliness. Number five, uh, four, sorry. I, I thought it'd be simple, but these numbers get you. Pray for your wife, pray with your wife, teach your wife. Number four, provide for your wife and be generous to her. It's common these days to sort of rag about the, 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 the problem of, you know, I used to own a whole bunch, then I got married, and I own nothing. My wife owns it all, right? What's mine is hers, and what's hers is hers. So the saying goes. But that's a, the, the delight of the husband, is to say on the wedding day, everything I own, it's yours. And everything you own is mine. But we give generously. Now, I want to say in terms of working, you should work hard. Work very hard at work. Never be afraid of making money. Always seek to make more as much as you are not being unfaithful in other areas. 
husbands should, there's just so many Christian husbands that get, they get uh, you know, uh, turned, turned away by the idea of making more money. Friends, if it's too much for you, give it to your church. If it's too much for you, give it to the needy. That, that's God's command. But also, if it's too much for you, then, then, then think of your wife, how much she puts up with for you. That's what I keep reminding myself. She's a patient woman. Think of how much she sacrifices for the children or the church or the mission and seek to give to her blessings of, of plentitude so that she can be generous to others, so that she can open her home in hospitality. Or work hard and be generous. What's yours is hers. Number five, communicate your goals and your mission clearly and help her to see her part to play. Husbands need to have a, a 5, 10, 20, 250-year plan for their life. Now, you'll be dead in those years, but your legacy won't be if you plan to glorify God with it. You raise up children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Your legacy will be alive 250 years from now. So what's the plan for your family in a quarter of a millennium? Do you have that? And, and in, in your 5, 10, 15 years now, they may change as the years go, but do you have a plan to work with? And do you call your wife into it and say, look, I need your help. Is this even good goals? Are these even gr great things? This is what I want to do. Can you help me think more biblically about it? And, and you ask her and show her, this requires you. I need your help. I need your companionship. Or, or I'm floating dead in the water. Show her her part to play so that she knows how to submit and respect you. Number six, communicate your frustrations clearly. We often, you know, joke it'll be the gal who's, you know, being passive-aggressive and huffing around, but my experience has been as a pastor that there's just as many guys that do this in our generation, huff and puff like, a, like, a, like an infant walking around stomping and, and waiting for somebody to solve the issue immediately or give you your binky. Just communicate very clearly what the issue is and seek to have a civil discussion to get it solved. Sex life is a difficulty, speak about it. Money is being spent in ways you don't appreciate, just talk about it. Have, have you engaged the wife in the conversation on those? Communicate clearly and calmly. Number seven, never apologize to your wife. Never, oh, now you listen, never, ever, ever apologize to your wife. Unless you have sinned, there was a comma there, not a full stop, unless you have sinned against her. Doug Wilson says this, he has never apologized to your wife unless you have actually sinned and you know how you've sinned. There's too many men that try and live life with the WD-40 and the duct tape of I'm sorry, babe. Squeaky wheel in the relationship, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. You don't know what for, but sorry will fix it. You said something good. You led the family in a good direction. She gets upset. I'm sorry, babe. It's the duct tape. It's the WD-40 that fixes everything. So guys believe until the ship of their marriage is falling apart in the open waters. I'm sorry, babe, fixes nothing unless there is an actual sin you need to confess and apologize for. And then I'm sorry, babe, is probably insufficient. So, so if you're making a good decision and she doesn't like it, if you're leading in a direction and she's offended, if there's sin that you've addressed and she's arcing up, don't try and calm the storms with, I'm sorry, babe. Walk through it. Bear the brunt of the storm. Lead your wife like Christ does for us. Don't apologize unless you've sinned and apologize quickly if you have sinned. Number eight, stand up for your wife in every way. She is, as the Bible says, she is your glory. 
She is the golden crown with jewels in it on top of the head of the husband. And, and therefore, when people are speaking ill about her, or talking badly to her, or mistreating her, or bleeding her dry, or being unthankful to her, and she's being pushed around and misspoken to, when that's happening, too many men sit back and don't realize that they're graffitiing his crown. They're marring his glory, and it is his God-given duty to step in. There are men who are more protective over their lawn and their cars than their wife. Some youth, street youth, rides across your lawn that you've just been fertilizing and mowing, and it's, per it's getting to summer, and it's coming up crisp green. Some kid rides across the corner of it and scuffs up your grass, and you're out the front door in the bathrobe and yelling at him, get off my lawn, or put a fence up here, come on. Then somebody's misspeaking to your wife, and it's a, that's a bit awkward, I'll just back away over here. What are the gents at the water cooler talking about? Somebody will get out of, the, out of their car at the car park at the shops, and they just tap, you don't even hear it. You just tap your car with their car door, and you're up in arms, and you're looking for their number plate, and I just polished this bad boy. Don't you realize I've got the lift on it, etc., etc., etc.? But when their wives are being mistreated or, or spoken of poorly, they don't jump in with the reputation-defending defensiveness of a husband. You are the brick walls to defend your wife and family. Act like it. Number nine, initiate affection by talking to her. This is, this is a blowing you out of the water, I know, guys. Affection can be shown with conversation. <whistles> Not always touches and squeezes, though that too. It is affection that starts with talking that is the most genuine. and the the, It's the conversations with your wife, maybe over a tea, over a brew, over a whiskey. I don't know what she's into, but talking. And here's the thing that guys need to realize. Talking about anything with no purpose, no end goal or plan being made for anything. Just chatting. Just chatting about how she feels, what she's thinking, what she saw, what her friend's feeling about her other friend's thought about her cousin's wedding dress or something. Just chat. She'll just have an endless amount of, 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 of conversation to have because, because she's your wife. She loves you. She would love to chat when you're not just trying to solve a problem. And so, guys, initiate that affection, that romance in conversation, not just when you are hoping for it to lead to the bedroom. But the whole atmosphere, the, the home of you, you husbands should be a greenhouse of affection and romance so that she is just flourishing and feeling loved. You, you annoy her with how beautiful she is and you annoy her with how often you say, I love you. Tick her off with it. Say it frequently. Initiate affection by talking to her. Lastly, never, ever compare her. I know we're going long here. We gave the, uh, the wives an hour on submission. We've got to give the guys an equal amount. Number 10, lastly, never, ever compare her. Th th this is, this is a, a sin against your wife. It is a sin against the 10th commandment, which says do not covet, and don't covet other people's wives. Do not compare her to her, her sister, her mum, your mum, other ladies, other guys' husbands. Well, well, you know, Steve's wife, she lets him dot, dot, dot. You know, the other gals, they don't mind when their husbands dot, 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 just never, ever compare. Verse 25 tells us, husbands, love your wives. Your wives right now. Whoever is in front of you or right beside you, that's your wife. Not an ideal version of her, not a younger version of her. Mark Driscoll says, your wife is your standard. 
Adam wasn't given a harem to choose from. He was given Eve. You aren't given a, sta a, a standard of beauty or a type. Your type is your wife. If your wife is skinny, you're into no curves. If your wife is formally skinny, Driscoll says, you're into formally skinny. Okay? If your wife, if you're both young, you're into her young. When you get older and she's formally young, you're into formally young. If you loved her blonde curls when you were married and now she has straight, short, gray hair, you dig straight, short, gray hair. Your wife is your standard of beauty. Love her. Love her as she is. Of course there will be leading her to godliness and, and helping her be all that she needs to be, but love her as she is. Do not compare her to anybody else. Lastly, let's just conclude here. Do you lead your wife into godliness, husbands? Do you teach your wife the word? Do you protect your wife from danger? Do you work hard for your wife? Do you sacrifice your own pleasures for the sake of your duty as husband. They're the standards, as Christ does for us. But of course, where the standard, where the commands are given as law to us, we remember the gospel aids and heals our broken souls. When the standard and the law is given and every honest husband says, fail, 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 I have not perfected any of them, the gospel comes in and says, but Christ has, and Christ has died for you, and Christ has bled for you, and that and that alone is the basis of your relationship with God. Your responsibility now, remember the gospel, trust Christ alone for your salvation, and flowing out of that great salvation will be a changed man that serves and loves and leads his wife with appropriate authority to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we are, we are fails. We are failures and we are sinners and we are rebels in and of ourselves. Every one of us, married, unmarried, male, female, young, old, divorced or not yet married, widows or, or not, whatever our status is, ultimately we all share the same status. Sinners before a holy God and we all have the same path of salvation. Faith in Christ who died for us and justifies us. We all have the same future. An inheritance in heaven for those who believe in him. Father God, we thank you that these commands come to us specifically and pointedly and meet us where we are and whether we are husbands who have failed largely and seriously or whether we are new husbands or whether we are husbands doing our best but struggling. Lord God, the Spirit comes to us and uses the word to wash us, empower us and guide us into greater husbandry. We thank you, God, that you will be with us to help us. I pray in a special prayer over those with failing, damaged, horrible marriages. Lord, they exist. We pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be merciful and powerful to redeem these marriages, that he would apply to our hearts the gospel to remember what makes us right with God to enable us to forgive each other and to enable us to believe that the future can be better than the past. Father God, I pray that you would restore. And for anyone in the room who is a sinner that is not yet trusted in Jesus, please give to them faith to trust him because he's the perfect husband who leads us to eternal life in heaven and we thank him for it. Father God, we pray all of this in our husband, King, our God, our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. And everybody said... 
This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.